Star Workforce Studio. Well, there are so many reasons, but the number one reason is that registered apprenticeship sponsors are looking for you. VR Workforce Studio, podcasting the sparks that ignite vocational rehabilitation through the inspiring stories of people with disabilities who have gone to work. As well as the professionals who have helped them. A job and a career. You, you got to look at how life changing this is. And the businesses who have filled their talent pipelines with workers that happen to have disabilities. To help expand registered apprenticeship. These are their stories. Because there's such a great story to tell about people with disabilities. Now, here is the host of the VR Workforce Studio, Rick Sizemore. Welcome to episode 101 of the VR Workforce Studio. Pleasure to have you with us today. The U.S. Department of Labor has announced that the 2021 National Apprenticeship Week will be celebrated during the week of November 15th. The week-long celebration allows labor and business leaders, educational institutions, career seekers, and other partners to demonstrate support for apprenticeships and preparing a highly skilled, diverse workforce to meet the talent needs of employers and train Americans for good-paying jobs. Over the past few years, we've seen more and more apprenticeship tracks in vocational rehabilitation. In our Big Inspiration Showcase today, we bring you one of the most inspiring people I know with a message for VR clients. Debbie Hopkins has worked in a variety of capacities in workforce over the past couple of decades, various roles on workforce development boards and grants. She was instrumental in helping the Career Pathways for Individuals with Disabilities grant to establish a number of apprenticeships across Virginia has now moved into a position which continues to rely on her expertise in establishing apprenticeships. My pleasure. Welcome Debbie Hopkins back to the show to talk about the top reasons someone in VR should consider going into a registered apprenticeship. Welcome, Debbie. Hi, Rick. I am, I'm so glad to be back. I felt like you've uh, kept a seat warm for me since I last <laughs> I was last in there. <laughs> yeah, Debbie's one of those people I keep on the uh, Rolodex. There's no such thing as a Rolodex, but I keep handy in my phone. And we, uh, even though it's been a while since we talked, we continue to stay in contact on some of these critical workforce issues. Debbie, get straight to the point. Why apprenticeship? for someone in vocational rehabilitation? Well, there are so many reasons, but the number one reason is that registered apprenticeship sponsors are looking for you. Apprenticeship is one of those areas where employers have decided that they want to build their own pipeline and they have an aspirational goal of a percentage of the jobs that they are hiring in registered apprenticeship to be from individuals with disabilities. So they are looking for you. There are so many opportunities in apprenticeship today that did not really exist um, as targeted for individuals with disabilities as they do today. 
Um, I would like to highlight some examples, Rick, unless Love to you'd hear like them. to give me. Okay, great. No, so, I was just thinking, <laughs> so what are they? <laughs> well, um, they're in any area that you can imagine, really. If you start looking at um, um, apprenticeship.gov, that's a fabulous resource that can sort of walk you through some of the industries that are looking for you. Uh, one of the ones is information technology. That is where I'm working today with an industry intermediary, and we have a focus uh, for individuals with disabilities to help them uh, go forward in careers. Uh, some of them are with apprenticeship sponsors who are employers directly, like Lockheed Martin. Uh, some of them are with educational sponsors uh, who are individuals who have a program where they're training individuals. So a uh, an apprenticeship if you think about it, the United States government is serving as a certification agency, if you want to look at that like that. So most VR clients, probably all VR clients, will obtain skill certifications from various industry associations. And they will certify that you have met the requirements to be competent and have earned a credential or a certification that says you can do this skill. And within that occupation, you may have, have numerous skills that are certified. Um, for example, when Rick and I worked very closely together, uh, we worked with the Hershey Company, and the Hershey Company loved Wilson's uh, program that gave certifications in industrial manufacturing technician. That is a job that they're certified for the rest of their life. So how does that happen? Because it is a, a job certification it needs to have structured on-the-job training, so a very uh, outlined uh, what it is that you're going to learn on the job with hands-on through mentors. So you're assigned a mentor to help you get through the on-the-job training and the uh, educational or related technical instruction is developed. What do you need to understand from the theory to do that job? You know, what do you need to know about safety? What do you need to understand about the job that you're going to do that you would normally learn in a classroom or an online environment? That is structured and it is it is developed to relate to that occupation. So you have a formal program certified by the federal government that would have on-the-job um, uh, on the job uh, components outlined, a mentor to help you do the hands-on, and then an outlined theory or educational instruction that helps you understand both. There's So this is a, um, a program that has the um, that has all of the elements so that you are um, going to be walked through a formal structured process until you are competent in the job. Now, Debbie, it seems like to me, you know, if I were a VR client and I'm thinking about, okay, how can I get into an industry that I would see employers in this role of providing all this access and training and the, the mentoring as an investment on the part of business and industry. And that would give me a little greater confidence that business is putting some skin in the game. Yes, absolutely. And through a vocational center, you actually start that 
from the center itself. So center, vocational rehab centers, as Rick taught me so much with the Wilson Workforce Center in Virginia, that is really gets its reputation from having strong industry relationships. So from the very beginning, the programs are based with industry input. And industry says, this is what we need on the job. Here's the competence we, we need. Design your, your training curriculum and industry exposure for the jobs we have available. This is what we need. So that's where it starts. And then for each of the areas in vocational rehab where you have uh, industry engagement, which has to be in every single one of them. Uh, so for those industries, then they come back and they stay aware and they engage um, some often coming and giving presentations to classes and so forth. And that's where the students get the exposure and the curriculum stays current. So yes, those industries are making that uh, connection in the very beginning. For those who are apprenticeship sponsors, it's a beautiful pathway to care, carry uh, folks who have been in VR directly into an apprenticeship because they often have helped design the curriculum themselves. Uh, at uh, Wilson, a great example was the program was designed so that all of that education that I talked about mm -hmm. and for the industrial manufacturing technician, it was 100% completed at Wilson Workforce in the VR center. It was 100% completed. So by the time the person came in, to, for, uh, to be hired and apprenticed by the company. They they hire them and register them as apprentices. They had already done all that. That's amazing. So they really, yes. So they had to then just have the on-the-job, hands-on experience using the education that they had already learned. So, Debbie, we're kind of coming to the end of our time together. Where, as a VR client, would I find out where these opportunities are? Who would I talk to? How, how would I find the pathway forward? The first place to start is apprenticeship.gov. That site is continually updated with resources for individuals with disabilities and also job finders to kind of get you connected. For each state, because not every state has a, um, a state apprenticeship agency or a federal, they kind of choose one or the other. In Virginia, they would look at the Department of Labor, Division of Registered Apprenticeship, and you can see the sponsors, the employers who've had decided to be sponsors of apprenticeship. You can do that on a national level to really, look at who's they are sponsors. Really and then awesome. last, I should have to put in a plug for intermediaries. Aption Inc. is an intermediary for information technology apprenticeships. You can find industry intermediaries also on apprenticeship.gov. Look under resources and you can see every single grant and contract. We have a contract uh, to um, to tell you by help you by industry and in getting employers and educators and apprentices connected. So check us out, aptian.com or apprenticeship.gov and look under resources for industry intermediaries. We'll uh, include a link to that in our show notes, Debbie Hopkins. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much, Rick, and best of luck on your mission. Up next, Betsy Civilette, our DARS Communications Director, talks with Casey Jackson from the Institute for Individual and Organizational Change on Motivational Interviewing. Betsy? Today on our podcast, Casey Jackson joins us with the Institute for Individual and Organizational Change. Welcome to the podcast, Casey. 
Thanks for having me. Well, Casey, I see you have a background working in mental health, addiction treatment, child welfare, corrections, and you worked for 16 years at Washington State University. Yes. You were immersed in motivational interviewing communication style. So tell us a little bit more about your background and what you currently do for the Institute. Well, and the executive director, I when I left the university, um, actually the, the primary contract I was working on was with uh, Division of Vocational Rehabilitation, Washington State. And at the university, I was pretty immersed in looking at motivational learning from an evidence-based practice perspective. Um, the way I was originally trained to train on motivational interviewing was very acronym heavy. And it was actually in VR that I kind of cut my teeth into really looking at how do we affect outcomes in a very positive way with really complex populations that moves beyond acronyms and really looks at human behavior, especially with complex needs? And how can we affect real outcomes? You know, not just go through a training, but actually impact, you know, people getting back to work and getting the support that they need. So that was my kind of transition from just mental health addiction, training on motivational interviewing and really looking at how do we impact real people in the real world with how we communicate? Okay. And and so are you currently working with the Washington State Division of VR? I went on from that. Well, I worked with uh, Washington State Folk Rehab as a contractor leading the project. Um, I was working with, uh, it was before uh, Lene Rutledge had just left for RSA. I just got hired on when she was still in Washington State. Um, with her community chief, Kelly Franklin. And then Lene went off to RSA. Kelly and I were working on this project together for, it was about five years I was working on that project. And that just, the outcomes were so kind of staggering uh, because Washington State was not in good shape then uh, as a VR system. And it completely turned that whole system around. And that was really exciting to spearhead that. And obviously, as soon as the data came out, <laughs> then I started doing VR in Alaska and uh, Montana and uh, Kansas, or, yeah, uh, Missouri, Michigan, Iowa, Delaware, like just all the, a lot of VR states were just calling when some data got published saying, hey, can you come here, work with us? We want to see that same shift in our, our data points too. That's excellent. It sounds like you've got a, now a diversity of, of different VR folks that you've worked with. And DARS as well uses motivational interviewing. In fact, we in the three-year period, we trained over 100 VR counselors and community partners, and they've used it with our career pathways clients, you know, to nice. help find them yeah, beyond a job, finding a career. Is that something that you saw with Washington VR or any of the other VR? Yeah, it was it was pretty amazing. We the, Some of the core data points um, that were really impressive is the staff satisfaction went up like almost monumentally, which is shocking. One of the things uh, we're looking at all the way going to fidelity. So it was beyond just going through training, like intro training, advanced training. There was a, a cohort that really wanted to become highly skilled at MI. So they got coded and coached and, um, you know, with fidelity tool in motivational learning and there uh, for the day back then, so this was, this was, you know, 2010, 2011, when there was rehab rates, um, those, that group of voc rehab counselors I got to work with, their average rehab rate went from around oh, 
52-ish percent up to between 77 or 82 percent rehab rates. Like it was almost doubled their rehab rates for the, the counselors that I worked with that became highly skilled at MI. So the outcomes just profoundly shifted when people actually developed the skill set as an evidence-based practice beyond just the training that people tend to get. Tell us a little bit more about what the components of motivational interviewing are. You know, the the primary thing that I always, the thing I boil it down to, because it can get pretty complex. Some people oversimplify, some people get pretty complex, but it really comes down to, does this person feel heard and understood? Which is just how deep can you go with accurate empathy? And then when do you learn to shift gears and start to focus on what they want or what they need. One of the components of a tool, a fidelity tool that I was lucky enough to, to lead, um, the motivation and competency assessment, is looking at do people know how to respond to language, like the sustained talk and change talk. Like when you hear when people are stuck, do you know what to say? When you hear change, do you know what to say? That's a core construct of what we measure to see is this motivational interviewing. When people hear types of language, because most people can go high empathy. Most people can start to guide people towards a plan. That's what most of us are very skilled at, is working towards plan. But when you hear language, it's like driving a clutch. Do you know when to shift gears, when to upshift, and when to downshift? And that's what, even with all the training that people get in MI, that tends to be one skill set that people aren't particularly um, adept at doing. Okay. I was talking to one of our folks, and, and they, they explained it is kind of a purposeful strategic dialogue, uh, which allows a practitioner to help them, you know, work through ambivalence. Is that, a, is that a big component of it? Yeah, that's, that's the kind of the elevator explanation. And even people still go, yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> and that motivational learning itself is kind of a confusing term, but that's a great explanation. What, one of the things that I always talk about is that it's not therapy necessarily, even though it came out of the addiction world and is very effective, it is a method of communication. It's when we open our mouths, are we clear about how that's impacting the people around us and the way that their brain is firing? And in the last few years where I've really gotten obsessed, just kind of this crosswalk between communication and how it impacts executive functioning in terms of trauma or trauma-informed care. So looking at motivation as an evidence-based practice and how does this affect people that have had uh, trauma in their life and help their brain do some reparative work through the way we communicate. Right. So it can be used in all walks of life, it sounds like. But getting back to the VR, can you give us a little more uh, data information? Like like you said, um, some stories about how MI has made a significant impact in helping those in the VR world to transform their lives. Yeah. What happens, I think, is that where we look at actually the, the hard data, like I said, the the rehabilitation rates back. And this was, oh, so I started the project in 2008. We wrapped in 2012. And one of the data points was that shift from, you know, rehab rate with the ones went all the way to competency from like a 52% rehab rate to uh, the highest ones were an 82% rehab rate. Um, some of the other aspects that were amazing is where they needed to be with their federal indicators were was around um it was about 60 percent 59 60 percent and they were at 120 percent of what uh, rsa expected for deliverables and this was really difficult for i think everywhere because the economy was so difficult that's when we we're in a slump in that 2007 8 9 10 we had hiring freezes 
And actually people's caseloads were doubling and their rehab rates were actually increasing. There, there were staff that I was working with that said, you know what, if I would have quit my job three years ago, and if I didn't have motivational interviewing now, I just feel like I have a meaner and leaner caseload. Like the people that just, we tend not to do, we, you know, they're, we go through intake, they're on our caseload and it just doesn't feel like there's any movement that just started drifting because people were either they really wanted employment or they were there for <laughs> the myriad of other reasons why people access vocational rehabilitation, even if their end goal is not to get a job, that started cleaning up those caseloads where it just feels like, oh my gosh, how do we navigate this caseload when I don't know if this person really wants to get back to employment. We, you mentioned training beyond acronyms and yes. your person mentioned the word equipoise. Yes. Yes. So tell us about <laughs> equipoise. <laughs> um, well, one of the things that, because there's the or skills and the darn cat and the darn C and the IQ ledge, and there's just so many acronyms in motivational interviewing. And one of the core component, one of the things that I like to focus on is the concept of equipoise, because it does impact our tone of voice, um, how biased we are. Equipoise is an attempt to go into a conversation unbiased, um, that we're not leaning one way or the other. And it makes it really helpful when we're dealing with charged situations. Somebody can walk in with, you know, the challenges that they have, say they want to have employment. And there's all sorts of things that can trigger inside of us our bias. Like, well, we've heard this story a hundred times. I know they're here because they just want to get on Social Security, but they're telling me they want a job because somebody told them that they did that. That's a hoop they have to jump through. Like we can have all these things that get stirred up in us. An example that I use for... um, how it impacts the brain on how we talk and how equipoise fits into that is you can, I can do a reflective statement. I can say, so you think that was your only choice and you can hear my bias in that. And that's going to make you defensive. I can also say, so you think that was your only choice. And then you start to explain your ambivalence or what your dilemma is. So we can train people on reflective listening all day long, which is what most people think MI is, is a lot of reflective listening and open questions but we, we tend to not be overly aware about what are we bringing to the table. And some of the attitudes and biases we bring to the table can actually generate the resistance that we're supposed to be, you know, mitigating in a motivationally based conversation. We want to eliminate that tension between us and who we're working with and have none of that negative energy between the two of us so we can access that ambivalence. But sometimes we're unaware of our own bias that's generating some of the resistance that we're trying to get over. And so that's the equipoise is one of the, the constructs that I have people really think about how much is our presence generating resistance with the population that we're here to serve. Well, that is fascinating. Um, and I tell you, I think I want to use motivational interviewing on my teenagers. Yes. <laughs> this is what I hear. Betsy, I'll tell you, that is one of the, after day one of training, day two, people come back and said, you know what? I use this on my spouse. I use this on my kids. And oh my gosh, this stuff actually works. Right. My son is in college and it's trying to figure out life and what to, you know, what to do. So that would be very useful. Yes. Um, Is there anything else that you want to add? Um, Well, I, you know, I think that's a perfect example, even, you know, half serious, half joking, even about, you know, like your son, it, Part of this with equipoise as well, too, is it's difficult in this day and age. One of the things I talk to professionals about that can generate a little pushback is to be able to be in equipoise, you do have to work towards kind of detaching from the outcome. And people just go, you don't, we can't, like, you don't understand our industry. 
we can't detach from the outcome, but it's just like a parent, the more attached we get to an outcome, literally that attachment is what will start to generate resistance, you know, and the pushback with the person we're trying to help. So ironically, if we follow that helper instinct or that, that love we have for our children, or, you know, we just, we lean into it and try to help and that in and of itself can generate the tension between two things or generate between, you know, um, our desire to help people at times with our own writing reflex can generate some of that tension that we're literally trying to get over and, and baffled when we go to bed, it's like, why are they so angry at me? I'm just trying to help, you know, and that, that can be part of the problem is not understanding that dynamic. So how do um, other VR departments um, find out about motivational interviewing and how can, how can they access it? It's amazing. There, it's it's really um, become more vibrant in the VR world. I'd say in the last uh, you know ten years or, go, or so. Um, no, I've been involved in, in so many other VR agencies. I think almost every VR agency in in the, the U.S. has been touched by motivational interviewing. I, just doing a Google search, typing in motivational and VR. There was an article that I wrote years ago. Um, there's so much data that's been produced since in VR. There's more and more journal articles. I remember there was no videos on motivation and employment. Um, we did the very first series with the TACE out of uh, Missouri, uh, Missouri, Kansas, Iowa. We worked with them and put a video series out. Gosh, that was um, probably 10 years ago. And since then, now there's so many videos on motivation and employment um, that's come out. And it really is just as easy as putting that Google search in there and, and looking for things. You know, we have some, some of that data is actually on our website um, at ifioc.com. Um, there's just so many places you can find good data on motivational and, and voc rehab uh, in this day and age now. I mean, it's just, I would say within the last five, six years, it's just been amazing to me to see how much it's grown um, and given access in this world. We'll have a link in our show notes for the Institute for Individual and Organizational Change, as well as Casey's contact information. Betsy Civilette is the Communications Director for the Virginia Department for Aging and Rehabilitative Services and the co-host of the VR Workforce Studio podcast. Well, we're so fortunate to welcome to the podcast Heather Service, the new director of the National Clearinghouse for Rehabilitation Training Materials. First of all, congratulations on your new job and welcome to the show, Heather. Thanks, Rick. It's been great. I'm so excited to be here and be part of this podcast team. Well, you know, Veterans Day is in November, and I'll bet you have some resources for vets and uh, the folks that work with them. Absolutely. And first, let me say thank you to all of our men and women, the service members that have served our great nation. We do have wonderful resources available for veterans and those who serve them on the NCRTM. I want to highlight just two of my favorites. There's an excellent vocational rehabilitation services for veterans with disabilities training available through the VR TAC for quality employment. This is a CRC credit available for those counselors who need to get those continuing education credits in. My other favorite resource that we have for veterans is the Guided Group Discovery Facilitator Guide. This really is a helpful for our counselors and others who serve veterans with disabilities in leading them through this group discovery process that helps them identify their conditions for success and really look to eliminate those barriers to employment so that we can find 
um, meaningful jobs and employment for our veterans who are seeking employment. Well, that's awesome, Heather. Of course, I have several family members who are veterans and an active duty military at this point in my life. So I'm grateful to you and the Clearinghouse for the work you do. We talked about motivational interviewing on today's show. I bet you have some resources uh, around that topic as well. We sure do. And we have an excellent training series that we put together with Oregon Vocational Rehabilitation. So not only is it motivational interviewing, but it's motivational interviewing specific for vocational rehabilitation. And so this really looks at how our counselors can employ this technique and working with their customers. We have special topics on engaging the wisdom of the team and using motivational interviewing with adults and student populations, which is really helpful in our environment today in vocational rehabilitation. Heather Service, the new director of the National Clearinghouse for Rehabilitation Training Materials. Thank you for your contribution to our show today, and we'll see you next month. Sounds great. Thanks, Rick. Here's Lynn Harris, director of the Wilson Workforce and Rehabilitation Center Foundation. The foundation is pleased to bring you these exciting stories of how vocational rehabilitation is changing people's lives. Your support helps students gain the skills and credentials they need to be successful in business and industry. We thank all of our partners in podcasting who made this episode possible. The Council of State Administrators of Vocational Rehabilitation, CVS Health, Dominion Energy, Daikin Applied, Hollister Inc., and United Bank. You can find out more about becoming a sponsor at wwrcf.org or find our contact information in the show notes at vrworkforcestudio.com. You can always find another exciting episode as we podcast the sparks that ignite vocational rehabilitation here at the VR Workforce Studio. Until next time, I'm Rick Sizemore. The VR Workforce Studio podcast is owned and operated by the Wilson Workforce and Rehabilitation Center Foundation. The foundation publishes and distributes the VR Workforce Studio and manages all sponsor arrangements. Audio content for the podcast is provided to the Wilson Workforce and Rehabilitation Center Foundation by the Virginia Department for Aging and Rehabilitative Services in exchange for promotional considerations.